Scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 3. We've already got a taste of it and singing it together. Now we're going to hear it as we continue our summer series in the Psalms. So Psalm 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. First of all, the introductory title, the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that little introductory title. It's there in the fine print. It simply reads, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, we don't really know when these introductory titles were added to the Psalms, but what we do know is that traditionally they've been regarded as being part of the authoritative or canonical Hebrew Bible. And for that reason, they're they're worthy of our consideration. For these titles not only help us grasp the context of a particular psalm, they also help us understand its overall message. And that's certainly the case with Psalm 3. For here we have an introductory title that teaches us two things in particular. First, it teaches us the obvious. David is the author. Psalm 3 is a psalm of or by David. David, of course, being God's anointed king. He was the king set apart not only to rule over God's people, but to actually represent God's people. And as a representative of God's people, David not only penned this psalm for himself, he also penned it for God's people. So that God's people, in their use of this psalm, might actually join him in moving from distress to deliverance, from restlessness to confidence, from saying, how many are my foes, to saying salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a psalm by David and for David, but it's also for all of God's people, including us. It's a psalm passed down to us to help us learn to rest in the Lord's salvation, especially when we're facing times of deep distress. Secondly, this introductory title teaches us about the historical situation in which this psalm was written. And what a sad and distressing situation it was. A situation that speaks to every parent's worst nightmare. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. When he fled from a son, he dearly loved. And we know David loved Absalom. We know this by the response that he gives to the news of Absalom's untimely death. We read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 18, where we're told that when David heard of Absalom's death, he was deeply moved and he wept. And he said, oh, my son Absalom, 
My son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's the heart-wrenching cry of a hurting and pained father. For David loved Absalom. But there came a time in his life when he had to flee from Absalom. For the son he loved betrayed him. Absalom rejected his father. And to make matters worse, Absalom incited a national revolt against his father and led the majority of Israel to war against David. We're told in 2 Samuel 15 that Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel away from David. And as a result of Absalom's betrayal and revolt, King David had to actually go into exile. And as he went, we're told in the story that he was met with cursing that claimed that God had rejected him just as his son Absalom had rejected him. And so the circumstances surrounding this psalm and that led to its being written were indeed distressing for David, persecuted by his son, plunged into war with his people and pelted with words of cursing. And notice all this comes out in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And then David adds in verse 6, Many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. Many, 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 many had surrounded David in hope of destroying David. And the mere fact that this was even happening was enough to destroy David, at least emotionally. And yet, remarkably, David could say amidst all his distress that he was able to sleep. Verse 5, I lay down and slept, and I awoke again. In the midst of the attack, in the face of his son's betrayal, in earshot of condemning words, David actually got a good night's rest. He slept confidently and peacefully. And I say it's remarkable because when we're faced with distressing circumstances of whatever kind, when, when life seems to be falling apart all around us, What's one of the first things to go? Sleep. Either we can't sleep or we keep waking up from sleep filled with anxiety and fear. David's circumstances were overwhelming, and yet he says that he slept. He actually got a good night's rest. And the question is how? How could David sleep amidst his distress? And more personally, how can we rest confidently and peacefully amidst distress. When we're faced with personal distress, the distress of overwhelming temptation and failure and all the accusations that come at us as a result of it, how can we rest confidently in the face of family distress, a marriage that's crumbling, or children like Absalom who are revolting? In the face of financial distress due to a lack of income or overwhelming debt, in the face of national and worldwide distress, bloodshed in Afghanistan, the continual bombardment of COVID, and now a hurricane bearing down on the coast. How can we rest confidently in the face of cultural distress, of living in a culture that more and more is changing and not always for the better? How can we find rest and confidence and peace amidst distress? 
Well, that's what David answers for us in this psalm. For what David gives here, out of his own circumstances, out of his own distress, is a God-oriented sleep aid. Through this psalm, David gives us a God-focused remedy for our restlessness. And it's a remedy that comes in two major parts. And the first part of this remedy is the non-negotiable of prayer. The first thing David did in the midst of his distress wasn't to formulate a military strategy to counter the attack. We can imagine him doing that. He's being attacked. His son is against him. He needs to gather his generals up and figure out how to attack back. But that's not what David does. No, the first thing he did was he poured out his heart to God. He spoke. He cried aloud. He voiced his fear and distress and agony to God. And he asked God to help him. Look again how the psalm begins. Simply, O Lord. It's a prayer. And then in verse 7, Arise, O Lord. Faced with distress, David didn't try to handle it himself, nor did he keep it bottled up. No, he got it out and he directed it to the throne room, to the holy hill of God. Verse 4, He cried aloud in his distress and desperation to his God. And what's amazing about this is the fact that the circumstances into which David had been plunged and the words that were swirling around him all claimed that God had actually abandoned him. There's no salvation for you and God. Obviously, look at your circumstances, David. Is this the way God treats his people? There's no salvation for you. It'd be very tempting for David to believe it, to say, I guess that's the case. My circumstances say so. Other people are saying so, and yet no matter how hurtful these words were, and they were, no matter how scary the situation was, and it was scary, David didn't get overwhelmed. And the reason was because his eyes, as well as his ears, were focused first and foremost not on his circumstances. That's what we do often. But David didn't have his eyes fixed first and foremost on his circumstances. No, they were fixed upon his God. Put another way, David's circumstances didn't keep him from prayer. Rather, they drove him to prayer. Therefore, in his distress, David did the very thing the old hymn calls us to do. He took it to the Lord in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble everywhere? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak? And heavy laden, cumbered by a load of care, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends, your children, despise or forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms, He'll take and shield you. You'll find your solace, your confidence there. Blessed Savior, Thou hast promised that Thou will all our burdens bear. So may we ever be bringing it to Thee in earnest prayer. What a lesson we all need to learn. What a gracious remedy that we're to take advantage of, the gift of prayer, of casting our cares upon God because, as the Scripture says, He cares for us. Casting our cares upon God in trust, trusting that He will, as David says in verse 7, arise and save us. Why? Because we're His. And because we're His, His ultimately in Christ, we can come confidently to the throne of grace 
that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now, how might we do this practically? Well, one way to be to actually write down our prayers. See, I'll go ahead and confess, I often get distracted when I pray. Begin to verbalize it and begin to stare at the ceiling, begin to think about other things. I get very distracted in prayer. And one of the ways that I've learned to hopefully combat this a, a bit is by writing down my prayers so that I might then, after they're written out, speak them back to God. And isn't that really what David's doing in Psalm 3? In the midst of his crisis, he actually sat down and wrote out his prayer. And yes, his was inspired and ours is not, but the point remains. He wrote it down, and it's a good and helpful thing for us to do, to get it out. To get it out on paper, to write the prayers down so that we might express them clearly and confidently to our God. Another way we can do this is by taking these psalms or other prayers in Scripture and actually make them our own to take them upon our lips and use them as sort of a paradigm for prayer. Take our circumstances and situations and fill up these inspired prayers with what's going on in our own lives, with our own anxieties, with our own fears and frustrations. For example, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? What are your present foes? What's rising up against you and causing you to fear causing you to doubt God's love and protection. Use a psalm such as this one to speak these particular and personal things to God and then say to him as David does, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. But there's one more way we can do this, and that's by faithfully attending this gathering every Lord's Day. Because you see, our corporate worship is actually our primary corporate prayer service. When we gather, this is the primary place where we're schooled in a life of prayer, of learning to respond to God in prayer, to the God who first speaks to us, of learning to pour out our hearts to God, as we're told in Psalm 62. This is one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews exhorts us not to forsake the gathering of worship, this gathering for prayer. So the first remedy that David gives us for our own restlessness is the most obvious and yet the one that's often neglected, prayer. What's the second? Well, it's remembrance. Intentionally remembering who God is amidst our distress. I've said it before. I need to say it again because more than likely we've all forgotten it. And I've said before, what I've said before is that I believe that one of the greatest spiritual diseases facing the Christian is spiritual amnesia. We are a forgetful people. We easily forget who God is, what God has done, and what He's promised to us. How He's promised to be with us through the fire and the flood, through fear and frustration. Think of what God tells us through the lips of Isaiah in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And the reason is, because as God goes on to say, you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Now notice God doesn't say that He'll keep us from the fire and the flood. He doesn't promise us that. 
Rather, he says that he will keep us through the fire and the flood. He promises to be with us because he's for us. And it's this truth that in a sense, we need to learn how to sort of screw into our hearts and minds until they're fixed there, until we really begin to believe it and actually live accordingly. And look how David does this very thing in Psalm 3. Here he acknowledges his precarious position. Everything was falling apart. It seemed like nothing would ever be the same again in David's life. He was truly facing a crisis. And the man or woman of God doesn't ever, ever ignore the crisis. We're not called simply to put on a brave face, to grin and bear it in the midst of the pain and agony. We're not called to sweep it under the rug. No, we're to acknowledge it honestly to God in prayer. But as we do, we're always to remember who He is. Verse 1 again, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation to God. Notice David didn't ignore it. He didn't simply put on a brave face. He didn't sweep it under the rug. No, he acknowledges what's going on in his life. But then there's a turn. Verse 3, but you, but you, O Lord. David remembered his God. And specifically, he remembered who God was for him. And he says three things about this in verse 3. Three things that I would encourage you to memorize and to repeat to yourself on a daily basis if necessary. What's the first thing? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Not simply a shield in front of me, leaving, leaving him exposed in the back and on the sides. No, God was a protective shield all around David so that nothing could ultimately harm him. And knowing that God was a shield around David, it enabled David to say in verse 5, I won't be afraid. Did, he, did what he face? Was it scary? Many thousands? Absolutely. So how can David say that I won't be afraid? Because he knew through the eyes of faith that yes, he was surrounded by many thousands, but ultimately surrounding him was God himself, his protective shield. To all onlookers, David was exposed and vulnerable, but through the eyes of faith, David knew better. He knew he was protected and secure. He knew he was in good hands. And so are you, if you're his. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 10? He says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them true life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you belong to Jesus, you are doubly protected. For both He and His Father have you in their hands. Which means you are ultimately protected. The fire and the flood, it will come in this still broken world. But it will not consume you. It will not overwhelm you because you have a shield and it is God Himself. Second, David says that God was His glory. What does that mean? Well, it means that God has bound up his glorious life with the life of His people. It means that God is so committed to His people, so committed to our ultimate preservation, that our good 
is intimately connected with His glory. His glory, think about this, God's glory goes hand in hand with our good so that in turn, we're to see God as our greatest good, as our significance, our dignity, and our calling, so that all that we are and all that we have are at His disposal. Because in faith, we realize that God has first put His all at our disposal. David could be confident because God was his glory, because God was his ultimate good. Which raises the question for us, do we regard God in this way? Do we regard God as our glory and as our ultimate good? And then thirdly, David says that the Lord was the lifter of his head. Let me get the picture. It's the picture of a parent taking the drooping chin of a child and lifting it up so that they're no longer stuck on the gloom and disappointment or the fear of the situation, but now their eyes are fixed upon the eyes of the parent. They see the smiling face of the parent, the, the face that says, I know things are hard, but what you need to know, what you need to remember is that it's going to be okay. You know, we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that when David left Jerusalem as a result of Absalom's betrayal, that he wept. We can imagine him going out of that capital city with his head down. But as he prayed, as he remembered the Lord, the Lord, in a sense, took his drooping head and lifted it up so that even through the circumstances, In the midst of the betrayal and the revolt and the accusations, David could see the smiling face of his God saying to him, it's going to be okay. David, you're going to be okay for I'm with you and I'm for you. I am your shield. I am your glory. And I am the lifter of your head. Now here's the question. How can we be sure of this? How can we be sure that this is true for us? How can we say with David that God is our shield and our glory and the lifter of our heads and that He hears us when we pray to Him amidst our distress? Well, because we, if we're Christians, belong to the true David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in light of Jesus that we can actually insert a second introductory title at the head of this psalm. The title would go something like this, a psalm of Jesus when he suffered for our salvation. For this psalm is ultimately a psalm of and about Jesus. It points to him and it was lived by him. So let me ask you, do you see and hear Jesus in this psalm? Look over it just one more time. You can read through it quickly. Do you see Jesus and hear Jesus' voice in this psalm? Do you see him surrounded on the cross by many foes who are saying, there is no salvation for you, Jesus. You're not God's beloved son. You deserve to be on that cross. But why was Jesus on that cross? Why was he the truly innocent one, bleeding and dying and suffering? Well, because he knew that apart from his sacrificial death, there is no salvation for us in God. For us who by nature are sinful foes and rebellious children. 
Apart from Jesus' distress on the cross, there's no divine blessing for us. Left to ourselves, we're estranged from God. And yet Jesus, the Son whom the Father loved, was willingly rejected on the cross that we might be reconciled and accepted by God Himself. And as a result, we've been given a new way to live confidently amidst our trials and temptations. Because you see, unlike David, Jesus didn't flee from His rebellious children. Thanks be to God, right? He didn't flee from His rebellious children. No, He laid down His life for them, for us, that we might be saved and made new in belonging to Him. Do you see Jesus in this psalm? Do you see Him laying down and sleeping? Sleeping in death. But then on the third day, awakening again, arising from the grave because the Lord sustained Him. And in rising, what has He done for us? He struck our enemies on the cheek. And He broke their teeth. Those enemies, of course, being the ultimate enemies of sin and death and Satan. Now, yes, these enemies still bite, but because their teeth have been broken, their bite's no longer fatal to the one who belongs to Jesus. For in His death and resurrection, our King has delivered us. And through His deliverance, we've been forgiven of all our sins. As Mitchell said earlier, of all our sin. And in rising for us, Jesus has silenced the voice of accusation, our own heart's accusation. The accusation of other people, and ultimately Satan's accusation. Because in him, there is no longer condemnation. And therefore, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you may look and see him there, him who made an end to all your sin. And at the same time, you may see the one who secured your future. For Christ, our conquering king, has crushed death so that death itself cannot and will not have the final word over the one who belongs to him. Death cannot win. Now, it sounds a little morbid, but I think about these things. I want verse 5 on my gravestone. I can't think of anything better. I'm sure you may have thought of it, maybe. If you haven't, you ought to. Verse 5 is what I want. I laid down and slept. I awoke again. For the Lord sustained me. The distress of physical death will come, but death has been conquered. For the risen Lord Jesus will sustain our bodies while they lay in the grave, and even as our souls are in His presence. And then at His return, all who belong to Him will have our bodies, these bodies, resurrected, will awake fully. And when we do, we'll finally be our true selves in both body and soul. We'll be everything God always intended us to be. Fruitful, flourishing, and free. Fully free to love God. To love others as we've been loved. And to love God's creation as His gift to be enjoyed. All this is found only in Jesus found now in part and one day in full. For truly, salvation belongs to the Lord, which means our salvation is belonging to the Lord. 
for He Himself is our salvation. And that's why the word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, Joshua, which in Greek is translated Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our deliverance and Jesus is our restoration. Jesus is our salvation now and forever. And therefore, no matter what we face in the present, Jesus must be our confidence, our hope, and our trust, just as we sang very loudly earlier. He's the one in whom we can rest peacefully amidst any and all distress, not ignoring the distress, but seeing and trusting the one who's for us and with us and even using the distress for our good because he alone is our protective shield. He alone is our lasting glory. He alone can truly lift our heads because he is the Father's eternal blessing upon us, upon us, his beloved people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son who enables us to say that salvation belongs to the Lord. And in Jesus, we are able to know in the depths of our souls that your blessing is upon us. May our eyes be fixed upon him. May your spirit be so at work in us that even when circumstances turn for the worst, our eyes would not immediately go to them, but to Him, because He is our hope and our trust. Amen.